This has been a field that has started and stopped many times in the edtech world. It's one of these strange things where it's like, we all work in education tech, we should know how well the products work, but we don't. And I think with the amount of data coming out, with the AI, I cheated, I, used, I talked about AI, but with the, with the new technology, I think we're gonna actually be able to start to say what works and what doesn't work, not only between companies, but between teachers, between subject areas, between types of questions, between projects. You know, there's a real opportunity to take our practice to the next level and actually see what works. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. I've got a joke. Are I you ready? It. Yeah, hit me. What kind of computer sings the best? Hmm. I don't know, Brad. Adele. Ah, <laughs> oh, and you have to follow that up now by doing your best Adele impersonation. If not you, then Alex, right? Alex would be great. Yes. Yeah. So for those that missed it, last week we had part one on the Digital to Learn podcast with Alex Sarlin. This week we're going to continue that important conversation. Alex is with the EdTech Insiders podcast and more, and we're going to continue the conversation today. So if you didn't get a chance to catch last week's episode, go back and listen. Otherwise, we're going to keep on going. Well, Alex, on LinkedIn, one, a former colleague said, find an excuse to work with Alex Sarlin. We love that. Tell us more about how you approach collaboration. And from the stories you've described so far, that that is a skill that you have mastered. How do you collaborate with educators? <laughs> I really appreciate that, but I definitely would not say that is a skill I have mastered. And this is not just false humility. I worked with incredible people over my career in ed tech, people who are both incredibly idealistic. They care about the world. They care about changing the world. They've gone into education for a reason. You know, I think of every engineer who works in ed tech and how they could often be making two or three times their salary by going to a fintech company, you know, literally down the block. They're amazing people. But my approach to collaboration is really that I work to find people who I think are really incredibly smart and hardworking and strategic. I work to make sure the best ideas win. And what tends to happen is that you get very close to your team. You get very close to your collaborators as a product manager. You get very close to your engineering leads, which is sort of your counterpart on the tech side. You get very close to designers. But what I don't do is get very close to executives. <laughs> so in many ways, what my collaboration style is, is sort of, it's almost like an insurgency style. It's like work with the people you respect and you're close to that are either on your level or below. Take people seriously, even if they're entry level, if they have ideas, they have ideas. They often are the people who know the most about what's going on on the, so that's that famous Japanese management style where you go talk to the most frontline workers to really know what's happening. But what I am not good at, and it's been a downfall of mine, speaking of failures in a number of different roles, is then 
taking those ideas and finding a way to sort of weave them through the upper levels and the C-suite and the the core decision makers and make them happen. It has happened in the past. I've been successful in some places, but often, you know, it scares people when it's like an insurgency. It scares people when a a group of people are coming and saying, here's an idea. Here's where we think it should go. We have research. We have everything. (laughs) They're like, can get overwhelmed or they can say, well, we already have a strategy or X, Y, Z. And it's caused a lot of issues. I mean, I remember even back in my time in Newton many years ago, and Newton is a bizarre place, but you know, in the time at Newton, there was a moment we were doing test prep for the most part. That was most of the time I was there, the core business of Newton was test prep. And I remember having a moment where, you know, we kept getting these same requests from many students, which was, you know, we were doing online live classes for test prep for the most part. And they were like, we really want leave behinds basically like cliff notes, cheat sheets, like resources that we can print out. So we remember all these for the GMAT and the GRE, like we want the formulas, we want the vocab lists. And I remember again, working with the people on my level, working with, you know, some of the instructors and being like, well, okay, they clearly want this. And then going to the executives or, you know, the people in charge of that particular area and being like, we should obviously make these like, this is like no brainer. And I was showing them what data camp had done at the time. Data camp does amazing online research, just at PDFs. I mean, simple resources. And they just didn't buy it. They did not think it was worth the time. They thought it was going to be a time suck. They thought it would be resources that would then be fall outside of their walled garden. So if like, oh, if the Newton vocab list got out in the world and people wouldn't want to pay for Newton's test prep services, all wrong, uh, wrong in every possible way. I knew that then I know that now, but I couldn't convince them. I couldn't and I'm, not that I'm always right, to be clear, but in this case, it was what the users wanted. It was obviously a benefit to them as test takers, couldn't get it done. And and I think that pattern has repeated many times. So, so when you see somebody saying something like, find an excuse to work with Alex Sarlin, it's because the people I work closely with, it's like, it's a blast. We have great <laughs> ideas. We put all these plans together. I move really fast. I really have a bias for action. I like to keep doing things. But I can't say that I'm a great collaborator because, you know, great collaboration means collaborating with everybody. And I tend to have a little bit of like a distrust of authority built into my personality. (laughs) Well, what you describe, I think, are two different skill sets. Yeah. I I mean, I'm sure there are people who are very highly polished at talking executive language and convincing them to do things. But for the for the to save their life, they couldn't have a conversation with a frontline worker. Yep, Mm -hmm. I agree. So you really need both. Those people ruin every company. <laughs> Those are the worst people to work with. And they inevitably drive things in the wrong direction. I'm exaggerating, but yes, those are my least favorite people to work with. That is going to be the quote that we pull and <laughs> yeah. put as like the headline. I'm being real. I'm being real here. I love I, it. That's that's what the podcast is for. Mm-hmm. And there's people listening that are going to really relate. And if they don't relate, then it's eye-opening. And that's what we want. It's different, but I'm thinking about some of our faculty audience members who are extraordinary at working with students and managing their course load and have great ideas, but are disconnected from administration or are unsure, why aren't these changes happening? Why aren't we doing more for our students? And there's not this clear communication chain between them and the cabinet or something like that comes to mind too. Yeah, the tendency, I think, is to want to have both sets of skills instead of figuring out which of those you're best at mm. yeah. and then finding somebody to partner with. That's a great point. If you can have a combination of 
people who can bring the ideas up from the front line, you know, really get the best idea and then work with someone else who can actually present it in a way that will be, except that's a killer strategy. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about the higher education context, Tiffany, and in higher education is such an unusual world because it's not like a normal company, right? You don't, it's not a hierarchy in that way. Professors, it's not a normal anything. It's not a normal anything. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. ten, tenured professors have so much freedom. They can really sort of live according to their own personalities and their own interests. And they kind of report to nobody in many ways. And then you have these adjunct professors who are the bottom of the totem pole and sort of tossed hither and thither. And then administrations that get bigger and bigger and, and provosts and leaders and deans. It is a very unusual setup and in many ways has some really amazing, you know, some of those organizational factors make it incredibly effective and invent unbelievable things that help the world and teach generations of students and others, I think, keep it from innovating and keep the best ideas sometimes from getting to the right place. That's my personal take. Totally agree. So we must be right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we mentioned at the very beginning that you have your own podcast, your own newsletter, and we'd really like to know more about it. So this is your chance to give a completely shameless plug for the things <laughs> that you have going on. Sure. Well, so what we try to do at EdTech Insiders, both the podcast and the newsletter, is talk about the education technology ecosystem and industry from a sort of perspective of the people really making things happen within it. So that includes founders of companies, that includes executives of large education companies, it includes operators who are, you know, heads of learning or various people and like that. We do talk to educators as well. We talk to nonprofits. But what it's all about is sort of getting the, what we like to say is the inside scoop about what's really happening that's making the education technology landscape evolve the way it is. So for an example of some of the things we've been talking about just over the last few weeks, I just talked this morning to Michael Chasen. Michael Chasen, he was the co-founder and CEO of Blackboard in the late 90s, sold it for almost $2 billion. During the pandemic, he created Class Technologies, which is built on top of Zoom, it basically makes Zoom into a really effective online classroom. At least that's what they're trying to do. And he, they just launched an AI feature so that while you're in a virtual class, you can ask an AI teaching assistant and get advice. You can do that to accelerate or remediate. Wow. Super interesting. And, you know, by having somebody that level talking about what they're doing, I mean, he has 25 years of experience in the field. He's seen all sorts of things change. It's just, I don't think there are very many outlets to talk to people like that, which is surprising to me. I mean, I think in, in many other industries, you can't get away from hearing from Elon Musk, right? But Michael Chasen is one of the most successful people in EdTech ever. And most people don't even know his name, let alone have access to interviews with him. So it's really a way to highlight the EdTech field from a different perspective than many other people do, I like to think. Hmm. And it makes sense to me that you would be conducting these interviews too, because of some of those neat partnerships and experiences that you've had. I mean, you know who to contact and where to look and... We just got done talking about communication, your preference kind of for working with that inner group or the group that you're on, yeah. the frontline workers. But on this podcast, in the newsletter, it seems like you really do 
push yourself and stretch to interview those executives that you love talking to so much. No. <laughs> well, I, I think the way it goes together, Tiffany, I've never thought about it this way, is that I try not to put heads of companies on a pedestal. I don't think of them as people who are like these geniuses that you can never touch. I think in many cases, they're more human than anyone else. They're more fearful. They have more stuff going on. That's part of why when I'm within a company, I don't just take their word for it and I'm going to push them. It's also why I tend to be, this isn't always true, but I tend to be a little, I wouldn't say totally unintimidated, but like I'm pretty comfortable talking to CEOs. I'm pretty comfortable talking to like super serious investors who have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend because at the end of the day, we're all people and everybody in ed tech is nice. I've never met almost anybody, maybe two people in years. That would be two of you and I, right? That would be two of Right, the two of you are changing my philosophy on this. But yeah, people are really nice. They mean well. They want to help the world. They want to make the world a better place across the board. This is interesting. See, one of the things that's happening in the EdTech insider world right now is that Baiju's, do you guys ever talk about Baiju's on this podcast? No. Okay. So Baiju's is a Indian EdTech company. It is the biggest ed tech company in the world by far by valuation. Their valuation is somewhere between 11 and $20 billion. It's started by a tutor and teacher named Baiju and his wife. And it's been this sort of darling of ed tech. It's one of the biggest startups. I think it's the biggest startup in India of any kind, because India cares a lot wow. more about education than we do. So there it's been massive. And last week, Baiju's house was raided by the Indian authorities because he's being suspected of money laundering and there's this incredible scandal <laughs> happening there. And, you know, I see you guys shaking your heads because this is something that here in the States, we don't even notice, but this is True. big news for global ed tech, because what it's going to mean is that it's going to, it's just going to change how the investment landscape happens. Some of the best investors in ed tech and generalist have invested in Baiju's. And if it starts cracking, it's going to really matter for, for classrooms. Wow. You, you don't think of it this way, but it's going to trickle down to what gets into classrooms here. So I think that stuff is incredibly interesting to just try to zoom out and see the ecosystem from a height, including uh, what's happening in other countries. Wow. I sense a documentary coming. Netflix original. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> You could easily focus on every article or podcast from now forward on AI. Everybody's talking about it. Yep. <laughs> what are some other major trends that we shouldn't be missing? Oh, boy. So, yes, I ask guests on my podcast this, too. I say, what's the big trend coming? You're not allowed to say AI because everyone does. I get a lot of different opinions on this from different people at different parts of the ed tech field. They tend to, you know, for the most part, sort of see it partially through the lens of what they do. I think from my personal standpoint, it's funny. I ask this question all the time, but I'm very rarely asked it. <laughs> I think there's something really interesting coming around efficacy and new types of educational data. There's a company called Learn Platform that started in the last few years. It's all about trying to help ed tech companies meet the tiers of efficacy set out by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And it's basically a, it's almost like efficacy as a service. 
Like if you're a company, you can go to them and say, we want to prove that we are efficacious, but we don't even know how deep to go or how much money to spend on this or how long it should take. And they have these four tiers. And the, the deepest one is really like serious research, randomized controlled trials, but goes all the way up. And that company was just acquired by Instructure, which is the company that runs the Canvas LMS. And that's a very interesting thing to happen because Canvas is one of very few LMS providers that really run the market. They're in K-12 and higher ed and corporate to some extent. And they're investing in the idea of efficacy of what works, who does it work for? This has been a field that has started and stopped many times in the ed tech world. It's one of these strange things where it's like, we all work in education tech. We should know how well the products work, but we don't. And I think with the amount of data coming out, with the AI, I cheated, I used, I talked about AI, <laughs> but with, the, with the new technology, I think we're going to actually be able to start to say what works and what doesn't work, not only between companies, but between teachers, between subject areas, between types of questions, between projects. You know, there's a real opportunity to take our practice to the next level and actually see what works. And I've talked to some people in L&D and they complain that corporate training also has no idea what works. There's this model in corporate training called the Kirkpatrick model, which is basically, it tries to measure efficacy by these different layers. It's like, did people like the training? Did people use the training? Did they remember it? Did they use it in their actual work? But that that was somebody's master's thesis in the 50s, maybe doctoral wow. thesis. And that's still the go-to model that people use for efficacy. We are so behind in this compared to many other fields. We try to borrow from psychology and social sciences. Sometimes we try to borrow from hard sciences and like medicine and do randomized controlled trials, but we are behind. And I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping, I've talked to a lot of people who are also hoping and trying to make it happen that we're entering a new era of understanding efficacy in education and ed tech because the amount of data is massive and it's there, but we have never had the skills to analyze it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You think part of the reason for that is deep down inside, we don't want to know? <laughs> I think so. You want to hear a funny story? I, I don't know if you have you ever, if the two of you ever heard of the CLEP plus, the CLEP exam, right? Yeah. Oh, the CLEP exam. Yeah. 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 So the CLEP exam, I always think of as the classic example of not wanting to know, right? People were like, hey, what if we did an assessment to see how much people learn in college? It seems like a kind of obvious thing to do, right? Why don't we do that? And every elite school in the country said, nope, not interested. We will not <laughs> even think about trying that. That, that, that. To me, that says a lot. You know, it says a lot. It does. Meanwhile, the less selective institutions were like, bring it on. We want to know, and we want to be able to highlight that we actually teach people. So it was really, really interesting. interesting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's scary. It's not a good thing. It doesn't reflect well on higher ed, sorry True. to say, True. to all their higher ed listeners. <laughs> When you were making predictions and you were talking about efficacy and you were talking about infrastructure, I just had this burning question. And that was, if infrastructure came forward and said, Alex, we've been looking at your profile on LinkedIn. We've seen some of your experiences and we need someone with your skill set to make this happen. I mean, would you <laughs> consider? It's an awesome question. Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to give you a strong Good maybe answer. on that. 
The people who can make that happen really well are psychometricians, right? It's a specific yeah. skill set that I don't claim to have. I would find it very interesting to think about how to bake efficacy data into a platform like Canvas, which has enormous numbers of plugin apps and many different hundreds of thousands of classes being taught on it. There's a lot of potential there. It could be very interesting to me. I've had so much fun, and I imagine that you to will identify with this. So you will identify this, Tiffany, especially. I've had so much fun not being tied to one thing and being able to talk to fascinating people from all over the sector and sort of be able to skip stones and talk about L&D and K-12. And we are totally agnostic about where we even go. So we're, we're all over the place. We interview people from the Middle East. We've had some Australian entrepreneurs. And if I can help it, I'm going to ride that as long as I can because it is so fun. That said, there are people doing incredible things. And, you know, if the right product or learning opportunity comes up that I feel like meets those criteria of, you know, doing the right thing for students, having a really smart business model, really checking all the boxes and having executives that are open to ideas. Now, of course, my goal is to make the most impact as possible. I think most people in ed tech share some version of that. So if a job like that at, at Instructure really could do that, sure. I don't know why I felt the need to put you on the spot that way. I just had no, to. No, it's great. Yeah, push you out of <laughs> comfort zone. I'm for an five open minutes, book. But, but really, we do understand. We just had a team meeting, Brad, myself, Mike Jones, who's behind the scenes right now. We had a team meeting today, and I was sitting there, think there's some silence. And I thought, man, every once in a while, I think, should we have like a core thing we're talking about and our agenda or something? And it's like, nah, that no. does not meet our culture at all. We yeah. just, just want to hit on everything or nothing yeah. or. Yeah. <laughs> go with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the benefit of working in a field that's not that hyper mature, right? EdTech is not that old a field. If you were doing mechanical engineering or something, it's been around for a long time. You can't just be like, we'll talk about anything about machines. Like that <laughs> makes sense. I mean, right. like, but, but with EdTech, it's a pretty small yeah. field. Even, even with all of these companies around the world starting, it's a pretty small field. And if you're not a niche, you can make amazing connections, interdisciplinary like you guys. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, so for this EdTech podcast, how often do you release an episode? Great question. So we release two episodes a week is our actual standard process, which is, I know sounds kind of nuts. We have a, what we call a week in EdTech each week, which is a current events, basically what's happening in the field platform that Ben Cornell, my co-host, and I, usually the two of us, sometimes we have guests on it, but it's mostly just like a, talking about what's happening in the news and there's a lot happening. And then I have long form interviews, like what we're doing here. We try to put out one every week, usually on a, on a Monday or Tuesday. So yeah, so it's a lot of recording. And recently we were just at the ASU GSV conference in San Diego, and we did a lot of interviews with people on the ground there. We did 10 interviews. So the last few weeks, it's been this like absurd. We just put it, we put out like probably 13 episodes in the last like two weeks, which is wow. just not smart. It's been dumb, but we did it anyway. We, we, we just, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And it's probably overkill. You know, I mean, it's probably too many of a few people have said maybe once a week is plenty, but I really enjoy it. And I've gotten really good feedback. I think people are hungry for this kind of news mm -hmm. and I don't think there's that many outlets for it, frankly. Well, I'm really enjoying being here with both of you. You do amazing work on your Digital Learn podcast. If anybody is interested in 
anything I've said from about EdTech Insiders, you can find the EdTech Insiders podcast on any directory. It's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you find your podcast for the most part. And the EdTech Insiders newsletter, which we hardly talked about, that comes out less frequently, is on Substack. It's also called EdTech Insiders. So we'd love to have you as a listener or reader because we're trying to cover really interesting things. Back to you, Tiffany. Red and I are so happy to have welcomed Alex to the Digital to Learn podcast. And we'll be back next week with a new guest where we promise that we're not going to just dig into Alex's history of guests and copy there, but we'll have a new <laughs> guest to be determined next week and hope you'll join us there. In the meantime, please like and share these episodes so that we can keep this going. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.